Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Today is Palm Sunday uh, and the beginning of Holy Week. And last year, uh, I did preach a sermon on specifically on Palm Sunday. Uh, but this morning, continuing on in the series in the Gospel of John, I'm just going to continue on in John 18, uh, which is the story of the betrayal and rest, arrest of Jesus. And then next week, John chapter 19, uh, next week on Resurrection Sunday, we will uh, speak on the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm reading this morning the first 11 verses of John 18. Uh, to tell you where I'm going in John this morning, uh, I want to talk about three parts of this chapter. One is the agony of Gethsemane. The second is the failure of the Apostle Peter, his denial of Christ, and then uh, the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? So if we have time this morning to get through all that, those are the three areas of this chapter I want to cover. John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, and these words referring to chapter 17, the high priestly prayer that we talked about last week, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You'd think that would be a pretty good clue to the soldiers. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We approach your word with reverence, with a, a deep, heartfelt appreciation, even a debt that we cannot repay uh, for what you did for us on Calvary. And as we talked this morning about those hours the night before your crucifixion, let us do so with a heart of reverence, Lord, and, and gratefulness for what you've done for us that secured our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are called the Synoptic Gospels. 
So if you hear somebody refer to the synoptic gospels, they are referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's because these books, while there are really big differences between those three gospels and how the writers write, the, the Holy Spirit superintends what is being written, but the Holy Spirit does not take over the pen of the man writing the biblical text and write for them. It is inspiration at the highest level. So the personality of the writer does come through the text, the style of writing, the grammar. We see Paul writing very differently than somebody like Peter or John. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of similarities. There's a lot of parallels, and this is why we call them the synoptic gospels. And those three Gospels also record the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden is still there today. It's a very popular tourist attraction. You can go there. There are trees, olive trees in the Garden that are at least 900 years old. A uh, great dispute over whether or not some of those trees are actually the trees that were there at the time of Jesus because you can cut those trees all the way back and prune them and they keep growing back. So it's possible that uh, some of those trees were even there at the time of, of Christ. And I say that because I want us to know this is a historical event. This, this story in the Bible is not a fairy tale. It actually really happened. And you can visit the place today. But there is a, there's a striking omission in the Gospel of John. The agony that Jesus suffered in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is not in John's text. John just doesn't write that down. But the other Gospels do. So even though we're in John 18 this morning, I'm going to engage the other Gospels uh, to tell the whole story of what happened in Gethsemane. So reading from Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus did not come to the Garden of Gethsemane to relax. This is his final moment, his last few hours as a free man, before he is unjustly arrested. He knows what he is facing. His entire life has been leading up to this moment. Jesus was, Bible tells us, a carpenter before he began his public ministry around 30 years of age. And we think, uh, we, we think he was more of a builder or a contractor 
maybe like a stonemason, a builder of buildings of, how, of houses, more so than he was a woodshop carpenter. We see this a lot of times, a uh, very popular movie that came out and show depicts Jesus making a, uh, you know, some sort of wooden something or another in his woodshop, and it's probably not what that carpenter uh, meant in those days, much more like a, a contractor. And I imagine there were days when he was toiling in the hot sun, laboring, building. He's on top of somebody's roof, repairing it. He's stacking stones to build somebody a house. We don't think of Jesus like that. But Jesus did have a life between 12 and, 18, and, 12 and 30. There's eight, 18 years there uh, that we just don't know what Jesus was doing. But we can imply that he was doing what every other Jewish man was doing. He was plying his trade. He was working uh, in the business that his earthly father Joseph would have been in. And Jesus was just a guy that's, you know, hey, I've, I've got a leak in the roof. Well, I know this guy, he lives a couple blocks down. His name's Jesus. Uh, he fixed so-and-so's roof. Why don't you go knock on his door and see if he can patch yours? That's hard for us to imagine because that's not the Jesus that we think about. But there was a time before Jesus entered in public ministry where he lived a very ordinary life. And I picture Jesus on somebody's roof on the hot summer day, and in his mind he knew there's going to come a day when he would give his life to ransom countless souls. But those, those days were early on, and the prospect of his death, that's years in the future. He's preparing for something. But not today. Today in the garden... The sand in the top of his hourglass is almost empty. It is time. And I want you to feel the weight upon Jesus. I want you to feel his sorrow. I want you to feel his heart breaking. He says the words, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. This is not your normal strain. This is no ordinary burden. One, he knows what manner of death he's going to die. I mean, imagine if you knew you were going to be crucified in less than 24 hours. What would your mindset be? The man, the woman that sits on death row in prison that knows they have less than 24 hours to live, that has to be daunting in the mind, but... At the very least, they know that it's going to be hopefully pretty quick and, and pretty painless. They're going to put a needle in my arm and I'm going to go to sleep and that's going to be the end. But not Jesus. I'm, I'm going to be crucified. He's seen crucifixions. Everybody has seen crucifixions. This is a common way of capital punishment for the Roman government who is in charge to put people to death. He knows what he's going to suffer. He knows that nails are going to be driven through his hands and his feet. He knows that uh, this is how people, they die. They actually suffocate. Death by cru crucifixion eventually ends up being suffocation. Your lungs begin to fill, and so you push up on your feet with the nails that's in them, and it's painful, but you have to breathe, and you take that pain as long as you can, and then you let yourself down, and you begin to suffocate, and you go over and over again until you die. But maybe even more than the fear of being crucified is the fact that he's going to carry every single sin of every single person who ever lived upon the cross. And then he prays. Matthew 26, 39, going a little further, he fell on his face, and this is his prayer. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Anytime Jesus prays, He is submitting to His Father. This is an instance where He is asking His Father, if be possible, let this cup, and this cup of suffering, there are three times in the Old Testament where it's used, the cup is used as an analogy of suffering and used at the same time as God's wrath. And this is what the cross is. It is God's wrath being poured out. So Jesus is submitting. I take the submission of Jesus to His Father to be something that is unique to the time of the incarnation of Christ. The time when Jesus walks on the earth in human flesh. It is the man Christ Jesus. It is that human being Jesus Christ who is submitting to the will of His heavenly Father. He is asking His Father to let the cup of suffering pass, if it be possible. And then He prays a powerful prayer that we can all learn from. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What can we learn from that for our own lives? Well, none of us will ever drink from the cup that Jesus drank. That's not our lot. Only one person there was ever only one perfect spotless lamb who could die for the sins of all people but we do have other things that come our way and what a model prayer to pray to say Jesus I'd like you to take this from me but if it is your will for me to have this suffering for more of my personal sanctification and for more of your glory to be displayed in my life then nevertheless not as I will but let your will be done That's a hard prayer to pray. Because I just want to ask Jesus to fix every single problem. I want Him to make the the road smooth. But the prayer of a mature Christian is, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will. We pray for this, and then we pray it according to the will of God. I pray for healings to be done according to the will of God. Lord, if it be your will, because I don't, I'm not God. I don't see all the moving parts and pieces. I don't see what he has in in play. The Apostle Paul has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. He just says it was a messenger of Satan sent to, to buffet me. A lot of ideas about what that thorn was, but Paul doesn't say what it was. Paul just says, I pray to the Lord three times, remove this thorn in the flesh. Lord comes back to him and is like, no, I have that thorn there for a purpose, for a reason. It's in your life, sticking you in the side every day for a purpose. The cup that Jesus was going to drink was a cup of suffering and of the wrath of God. And he is going to cry out in just a few hours on a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is going to die a brutal, agonizing death. His friends are going to abandon him. He is going to suffer the greatest injustice ever perpetrated upon any person in the history of time. We see injustice in this world every day, and it saddens us. It makes us angry, as it should. But no one ever suffered injustice like Jesus. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon him, and that's in the cup. I'm going to touch on this more next week, but I think it bears repeating what is happening, what is getting ready to happen. The righteousness of God, Paul said, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I regard this passage here as central to the Bible as anything else that's in Scripture. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. It's like, who killed Jesus? God did. God is responsible. Romans 25 says so. 825. Romans chapter 8, verse 25. Whom? Who is the whom? Is Jesus. God put Jesus forward, the man Christ Jesus, as a propitiation. That word propitiation means it is a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Paul is borrowing that language from the broader pagan world. They would offer sacrifices to the gods because they thought the gods were angry. There's a drought. The gods must be angry. We're going to appease the anger of this God and offer a propitious sacrifice so that the gods of the rain and sky won't be angry. This was a pagan idea and Paul adopts that language and says, this is what's happening. We talk about the Old Testament God being such a wrathful God. R.C. Sproul said that the, actually the greatest display of the wrath of God is not in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, in the cross. Romans 8.31, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is revealing to us the glory of the gospel in these verses. Paul is writing about it, but Jesus is living it out this night. And it is in anguish suffering, drinking from the cup. God is holy. His holiness demands perfection. His holiness requires righteousness. And ever, every sin ever committed by every human being must be accounted for. God will balance the ledger. And every sin will be accounted for either by the wrath of God upon man in eternal punishment of hell fire. Like hell is not unjust. The question is not, how can a loving God send people to hell? The question is, how could a holy God not require a penalty for sin? Or, the second option for the wrath of God is upon Jesus on the cross. The song we sang last week, that fourth verse, He is all my righteousness, I stand complete in Him and worship Him. Therefore, being justified by faith in we have peace with God. We stand righteous in Christ, not by my works, but by His works on the cross. His righteousness imputed to me. My sins are paid for in Christ's body, and Christ in turn imputes His righteousness unto me. That is salvation. That's how we're saved. That's how really we are. We don't see it happen, but that's what's going on behind the scenes. Christ absorbs my sin. He says, I'll pay that penalty. And then he says, and I'll take my righteousness and impute it upon you. And so now we go, we were looking at Matthew's account of the garden. Now we're going to go to Luke. So Luke records, because you kind of got to piece this all together. This is what we do in the gospel stories. We, we take parts because some writers choose to record some parts of the story, and you look at all four Gospels, especially 
in the account of the passion and we come up with the holistic story of what's going on. So Luke, the physician, writes this while Jesus is praying. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I don't want to get caught up on whether or not Jesus actually sweated blood, or if it's a metaphor. Um, I am of the side that this is literal, that Jesus actually sweated blood, and here's why. Two reasons. One, I think that in the original language from my own study, and I am certainly no expert, but from what I know about the original languages, what I know about the Greek, looking at it, reading it in the original, and I don't appeal very often in sermons to the original languages for a reason. Um, I will study them, I will look at it, and then I will let that inform how I preach a sermon, but I actually won't bring it up in the sermon. But I'm bringing it up this time because I think it's more apparent in the Greek that this is literal. I think it appears to be more literal in the Greek than the way it's translated in the Bible, in the English. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, the, I think the English translations come across as could be a metaphor. I think the Greek points it to being a little more literal. And number two, the only account that we have from Jesus sweating blood is from Luke, who is a physician. He is a doctor in that day. There is a medical condition called hematidrosis. It is an extremely rare condition characterized by the sweating of blood, which is said to occur when a person is facing death or other highly stressful situations. And what happens is the capillaries under the skin, when a person is under great duress, the capillaries begin to break open and bleed and the blood comes up through the sweat glands and it is a person literally sweating blood. The redemption of humanity was not cheap. It was a hard fought battle by our Lord and Savior. We talk about thank God for the blood and we picture the cross, but if this is true, and I believe it is, the blood began in the garden. There are documented medical cases throughout even the last hundred years of people who have experienced this condition under great duress. And the reason why I can take this as something that happened was if it can happen to people who are under great duress and stress, no one was ever under more stress and anguish than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think any person in history has ever experienced anguish like what Jesus experienced in the garden because no person in history has ever drank from the cup that is taking on the sins of the entire world. We go back to John chapter 18. That is the agony of Gethsemane. Let's look at the failure of Peter. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here, but this is verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caphius, who was high priest that year. And it was Caphius who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Now here's the failure of Peter. Now Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did with another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, No, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by, standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? So we get the kind of the appearance that Jesus is being, I don't know what word to use, but he's being a little smart. He's being a little pointed. He's talking very direct to the high priest, to the, to the point where an officer hits Jesus and says, you, know, you don't talk to the high priest that way. Jesus answered him and he said, if I, what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. In other words, tell me what is wrong about the statement that I just made. But if I, what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caphias, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now think about what's going on here. The, the, a man in the garden gets his ear cut off by a sword. If you're a family member of that person who just lost their ear, you're going to remember the face of the guy that swung the sword. And that's what's happening here. He's saying, I was in the garden. You chopped off my second cousin Malchus's ear. I know it was you. And Peter said, nope, wasn't me. And at once a rooster crowed. Now, in just a few weeks, Peter is going to preach a sermon on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit is poured out. The sermon will result in God opening the eyes of people who did not believe in Jesus. Acts 2.37, Peter preaches this magnificent sermon and says, This Jesus who you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, and the men cry out, they're pricked in their hearts and their eyes are open. They say, what do we do? Like, yes, we get that now. We murdered the Messiah. But that's in the future. We have the advantage of hindsight. We know how the story ends. Peter is living it in the moment. At this point in the story, Peter is an absolute failure. He is denying that he even knows Jesus. And his whole world is spiraling out of control because I followed this man for over three years, day and night, traveled with him. He said he was the promised Messiah. And now he is on his way to being executed. I'm the one 
Cephas. Peter, who had the revelation of who he is. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and some people say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that stepped forward and said, you are the Christ. That Christ is, means anointed one, Messiah. They've been waiting for a long time for God to send the Messiah. The Jews are looking for Him. Peter says, I recognize that you are the Messiah. But here's the thing. Different factions and sects of Judaism had different varying opinions on whether or not the Messiah was going to be divine. There were some Jews, some groups of Jews that thought, God is going to send a Messiah who's going to save our people. Doesn't mean He's going to be divine. So Peter's revelation wasn't just that you are the Messiah. Peter's revelation was the second sentence. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Roman Catholic Church takes this to the extreme of Peter is the first pope. Like the church is built upon Peter. We don't, we don't take it that far. Um, we don't think it was Peter per se. It's this revelation of who Jesus is. It's this relationship. You are Peter. I'm going to build this church on the rock of the revelation of who I am. But Peter is going to be a really, really big deal in the future in the world. I mean, nobody elevates Peter like the Roman Catholics. But even us as who are not Catholic, we look at Peter and we're like, he was the first preacher on the day of Pentecost. He is Peter is going to do some great things in the world. Look at Matthew 26. Disciples and Jesus get together and sing a song. And then they go out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answers. Peter's the one that gets up and says, No, 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 no. hold on, hold on. Though they all fall away because of you. Like, I don't know what these other 11 guys are going to do. They may all fall away. But you're wrong about me. I will, this is what he said, I will never fall away. Ever. Like, these bunch of no counts, they do what they want to do. I know me. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll die for you. <laughs> Jesus' answer is, Peter, this is what I tell you, that on that very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter's answer is, Lord, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says all the disciples said the same. They're like, Peter's the leader, and they're all behind him going, yeah, yeah, that's right. We'll, we'll, we'll die with you, Lord. I think we all see ourselves in Peter. Not all of us have his personality. Peter is type A. He sometimes speaks before he thinks. He can be rash. He's the one that pulls out the sword and cuts off the ear in the garden. I will die for you, Jesus. I'll never leave you. You may or may not have that personality, but where we identify with Peter is that we've all failed Jesus. We all are like Peter and that 
Every single one of us have failed Jesus. And after Peter denies Jesus the third time, the Bible says the, roast, the, the rooster crows. And when it does, that sound jogs his memory. And he remembers the words of the Lord that says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Luke says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now we're going to see the reconciliation between Jesus and Peter later on in John chapter 21. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? The third time, yes. Go feed my sheep. But on this night, Peter is condemned. He is at his lowest point. We've all been Peter. Probably what bothers us more than the fact that we've all been Peter is that we all know, we all live with the knowledge that we could be Peter again. That's what I think gets us is we know that we're capable of doing that again. Grace is not a license for loose living. Grace is a higher law than law. Grace is not a hall pass to not live for God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But grace is what makes up the difference in my weaknesses. My weaknesses are made perfect in the strength of Christ. Thank God for grace and mercy. We see it in Peter's life. In just a few weeks, Peter's going to be the guy boldly proclaiming Jesus. A few weeks ago, he denied him. A few weeks later, he's boldly declaring Jesus. Years later, he's going to write words that become on par with the writings of Moses, their scripture. Thank God for grace. The Lord the psalmist said, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he always keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Verse 13 in that psalm, A father, as a father, shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. I don't ship my kids off to the orphanage every time they make a mistake, uh, and neither does my father banish me when I fail. He sends conviction my way, through the Holy Spirit, He pricks the heart. He sends a preacher to point the finger in my face. He sends His Word to correct me. The correction of the Lord is never to punish us. It's to get us back on the right path. And that's how often He shows us grace. And this is what Jesus does in the life of Peter. Jesus was not done with Peter. After denying the words of Jesus, He goes on to be a leader in the early church. And I thought, if you would have told Peter in the garden, or in the courtyard that night when he denies Christ. Peter, there's going to come a day when you are going to pin words on parchment that are going to be encapsulated forever, translated from that original manuscript that, that you wrote. People are going to grab those words. They're going to keep them. They're going to end up in 
hundreds of languages read by millions of people, and they are going to be considered Holy Scripture just like what Moses wrote in the Old Testament. Peter says, I can't even admit, admit that I know Jesus. Like, I can't even get the, I've been given three chances tonight to say I even know the guy, and I've lied. In one place it says he curses. Like, he's saying words, he's saying curse words to prove if I was a follower of that guy, I wouldn't be using this kind of language. So he's cussing in an effort to prove. Now, we've all said some pretty bad things in our life. I don't doubt, I, I doubt any of us have ever cursed with the intention of proving to other people that I don't know who Jesus is. That's what Peter did. I think it really shows the vast grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And it shows the love. So what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Because what is Judas? I mean, Judas betrays the Messiah. He sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Then he goes and we, we assume it's suicide. I don't think that's usually disputed when it says that he, his bowels burst everywhere when off the side of a hill he's hanging himself or throwing himself off a cliff. The difference between Peter and Judas is Peter found a place of repentance. Peter repented and Judas did not. Peter found a place to say, I may have failed spectacularly, but I actually do love Jesus. It was just, I was just being a complete knucklehead that night, but I actually do love him and I, I, I want to follow him. I, I think it's really indicative before this in the story when Jesus turns around and says, I mean, Jesus just got done telling a group of people, if you're going to have a part of me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this offends people. They walk away and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey, fellas, are you also going to go away? Like, am I going to have to start over with zero? I had a crowd and I said some things. And notice when Jesus says that, he doesn't chase the people down and say, hey, folks, I think you misunderstood me. I was speaking metaphorically. I didn't mean you actually had to become a cannibal and eat my flesh and drink my blood. It was a metaphor. Jesus doesn't do that. His response when the crowd walks away offended, and they're like, this guy is insane. He's telling us we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus doesn't clarify it. He turns around to the 12 that are left and says, what are you going to do? And this is... Peter's answer, and I think this is where Peter finds his place of repentance years later, is in this attitude. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't think that the disciples had any special insight or revelation at that particular moment of what he was talking about. They just knew that, I don't know what you mean by that, but I do know you have the words of eternal life and you're the Messiah. So I'm going to keep following you and trusting you, even though I don't understand everything that you're saying. And this is where Peter, years later, I think it's that mindset that says, you know what, I, I, I really messed up, and I don't know if Jesus will have me back, but I'm going to keep following him because I don't have any place else to go. It is so telling for our lives that when people make spectacular errors in their life, that they turn around and say, I really messed up, but I don't have any place else to go but keep following Jesus. Where else would I go from here? 
That is the difference between being saved and being lost. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And it is that grace that God places upon the life. It is that promise in Romans that those that He justifies and sanctifies, He will also glorify. He is going to hold you and keep you. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Part three, what is truth? John 18, continuing to read a few more verses, verse 33. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and calls Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What, what have you done? Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Peter said to him, What is truth? That question has been echoing for 2,000 years since Pilate said those words. And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. So in closing, two observations on this text. Number one, we belong to a kingdom that is from above. We live in the same world, we work jobs, we go to school, we eat at the same restaurants, we go to the same vacation spots, we do all those things with people who are of this world, who are not kingdom-minded people. So we live in this world, but we belong to a kingdom and to a king who is not of this world. The values we hold are different than those of this world. The world says climb the ladder, step on people to advance, might makes right, only the strong survive. Kingdom values say be a servant, serve others, humble yourselves. The last shall be first. God will be the one that exalts you. The world will pass away, the kingdom is eternal. The second observation on this text, Jesus is the truth and all truth flows from Him. <coughs> Pilate asked the question, what is truth? What he should have asked the question is, who is truth? Because Jesus, we preached it just a few weeks ago in John, Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. So Jesus is truth. He is the ultimate truth. And anything that is true flows from Him. Now, I don't assume that you know, you may or may not be familiar with what postmodernism is. And if you're not, I would encourage you to read about it because so much of what we're dealing with in our culture today is a result of postmodernism and its way of thinking. We had a lot of these discussions in a class that I was in with uh, Dr. David Norris. And I went up to him after the class and I said, Dr. Norris, 
because he was talking about how this was instilled in the educational system, especially in higher education, universities, colleges. And I said, when did this really, really take hold in higher education? I said, probably the 1960s. He said, no. He said, it was really actually probably later on in the 1980s. This is a pretty fairly modern thing for postmodernism to come in and take hold. And then what happens? What happens to people who go through and are indoctrinated with these ideas in the 80s? Well, they become leaders in the 90s and 2000s, and then they teach it to other people, and eventually it takes over the world. Postmodernism developed as a rejection to the modernity, the mindset, the thinking of the 20th century. People in the 20th century really felt like they had it figured out. I mean, think about what happened over the last hundred years. The technology advancements, the everything that came uh, in, in the world, just so much good stuff happened in the 1900s. Think about how drastically different life was in the 1900s and the 1800s. Like, life is not that different in the 1800s versus the 1700s. There are some advancements, but like, life's not that different between the 1300s and the 1400s. But from the 1800s to the 1900s, think about what life is like. The mass change that happens that's for the good. And then World War II happens and other wars. And at the end, people looked at it and said, we have created the bloodiest century in human history. Millions upon millions upon millions of people died in the 20th century because of war. And they said modernity wasn't the answer, this way of thinking. And so they, they wrestle and they, they just import this philosophy of postmodernism. To give you an example, the idea that people today cannot define what does it mean to be a woman? Like, what is the definition? I've watched interview after interview after interview of panels where they'll say, tell me what the definition of a woman is, and the person will say, oh, I can't. We can't define it. Can't define what a man is. That is postmodernism, because one of the ideas of postmodernism is that words don't, their meanings aren't, aren't exact, it's ambiguous, and all this comes from a, a thinking, a philosophy. Well, I would say no, modernity wasn't the answer and postmodernism isn't the answer. Jesus and his ways and his teaching and his kingdom, that is the answer. One of the biggest things we're struggling with now that uh, whether or not you know this term or not, you are living in a world where this is very relative and practical because postmodernism as a rule rejects the notion of absolute truth. I don't have time to get into the ways that that's a serious problem, but it rejects the notion that there is absolute truth and that absolute truth can be known. In other words, my truth is different than your truth. Like relativism is saturated in postmodernism. Okay, you have a truth, but then I have a different truth. And what's true for you may not be true for me because absolute truth cannot be known. This becomes a massive problem in Christianity. That's why Christianity doesn't embrace this and cannot embrace this because we believe we can know the Bible. We believe we can discern what is absolute truth about Scripture. 
postmodernism says, well, absolute truth actually cannot be known because our truths are, are different. We see this daily in gender discussions. My reality is defined not by truth, but by my perceptions and feelings and preferences. And the problem with this, if you ever encounter somebody that wants to say this, here is the argument. <clears throat> this is nothing new. There, were, there was one seminary professor in the 1960s that got, he, he, he became known for saying, this was the crux of his whole class and everything he taught, and it was this. And this is, this is our objection to this idea. As soon as you say there is no such thing as absolute truth, you have made an argument for something to be absolutely true, namely that there is no truth. You want people to accept the truth that there is no absolute truth, and as soon as you do that, your argument fails. Because you're arguing there is no such thing as absolute truth, well, you're arguing something that you believe to be true. And I, I can come back to you and say, no, no, there's, there's no such thing as absolute truth according to your argument. This is why the, the, the ideas are absolutely insane, but that's the world we live in. You need to know the world you live in. You need to know the thinking of what is being propagated upon your children, my children, in every avenue is this post-modernism way of thinking. And Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality in the world. You cannot know absolute truth and see the world rightly until you know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know truth. This is why when I just had this conversation with somebody this, this week, they said, and, and they hadn't come to faith until later in life, they said, when I came to Jesus... I became more, and they started describing how their thinking started to change. And I don't, people don't even see this coming, but when you come to Jesus, you come to faith and you start accepting God's Word as the ultimate reality in your life, it reorients everything else in your life. To know Jesus is to know absolute truth. I think this is the reason why sometimes we, we can watch, you know, I'll watch these debates and interviews and, and so on, on on YouTube and places like this, and you know, you're just, the absurdity at what's being said is, um, you're just like, 10 years ago, hearing somebody say this, they would have been laughed off stage. No one would have taken them serious. And the things that are being said now, I mean, the, the evolution of the mindset of America has evolved very, very quickly. It's happened at a, at a very rapid pace. And it all comes from people whose ideas and beliefs are not rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and His Word. So you and I, we see the world differently. We should see the world differently. Because what we see is objective, absolute truth, and it can be known. How does that relate to my life today? Knowing Jesus and being right in your thinking will help you navigate this world in ways that other people have absolutely no way to navigate. You have the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, and thank God for that. Amen. Let's stand.
Let's pray. Father, this morning, that early morning hours 2,000 years ago, Passover season, a man was being unjustly tried in a mock courtroom for violating your law, for claiming to be the Son of God, for blaspheming against you and everything that is holy. But Lord, that, that same man that was crucified, that's our salvation. We believe and embrace everything he said, every word that he spoke, we receive as absolute truth. We are thankful this morning, and while, yes, we want others to come to faith and see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, standing here this morning, we are grateful and thankful that we have seen the light that is in Scripture, that we believe that we can know truth, that to know truth is to know Jesus, that we can be secure in our salvation, that we can be right in our thinking, that we can be pure in our hearts. So, Lord, this week as we approach this Holy Week, a time of preparation, preparing our hearts for Resurrection Sunday next week as we gather together and, and honor You for the, the sacrifice that You made for our sins and for the sins not only of us but for every true child of God throughout history. Lord, help us this week to be mindful of that to be preparing in our hearts and minds to uh, to commemorate that but also to celebrate on resurrection sunday we gather as a time of celebration to celebrate that you didn't stay in the tomb you didn't stay in the grave uh, you really as jesus christ really died but was truly raised again unto life eternal and we celebrate that resurrection this morning we partake in that resurrection power today so, Lord, be with us this week. Help us to honor you in everything that's said and done. And we ask this in the name above every name, the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning.